and I'm going to be in compliance, in compliance tonight, and 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 read from the ESV from the pew. I did. I was telling in Sunday school this morning. I haven't bought one yet. I apologize for that, but I'll read from from the pew Bible and then go back to my NAS as I'm teaching through here. And thanks for the. Um, Throwing me a bone there, Merle, on my short notice. <laughs> so, and I and I think somebody told me a long time. As far as reading those names, you did you did well. And I was told that it helps to hold four marbles in your mouth when you're reading some of those Old Testament names. I heard somebody say that a long time ago. But uh, anyway, Romans chapter ten. I'm going to read. It's not a long chapter. I want to read all of this, and, um, and then we'll go from there. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did, it, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary or, or an obstinate people. All right, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that you'd help us in these few moments and that you would, uh, your Spirit, Holy Spirit, come upon us and work in our hearts and help each one of us, uh, help us all to hear the truth of your Word, exactly what you, you mean for us to hear. And, and Lord, apply it to each life as we 
as uh, as we need, Lord. You know what's going on in the hearts and minds of every person in here. And, and I just pray that, that you would minister to us, that you would be our teacher and our God. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. We, we need you. We call out to you. We are trusting you, Lord, and uh, you are faithful. Help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, um, I'm, I'm assuming that Justin's going to get to Romans chapter 10 sometime in the near future, and I'm not trying to beat him to it. Uh, I've been reading through Romans a lot lately. I've been meditating on some things. And you know that, um, and I don't mind if you, if you call it, how, how long, how many weeks could I preach or could anybody preach from Romans chapter 10? And I just read the whole chapter. I'm not going to be able to do all of that. But I wanted to read all of it and, and to get to the last verse to make sure that we have at least all of this context because I'm going to have to go back and get some more uh, from the previous chapter as well. And um, <clears throat> this morning, Merle finished his message and he was, t- he was talking about simplicity. You know, uh, he, he talked about how simple what, what he had been explaining to us was and how simple it was if, uh, for us to, to grasp that in Christ. And um, I, I want to ta- keep things simple tonight as well. When you say, well, you know, Romans, Romans chapter 10, keep it simple. Well, you know, what's all that about? But I, I want to try to do that. Let me ask you this. Have you ever I'll take my reading glasses off once in a while so I can at least see your faces? They're not even fuzzy with these on. But ha- have you ever, um, and I'm assuming that you have when I ask the question, you ever watched somebody do something the hard way? You ever agonized through watching somebody do something the hard way? I mean, you knew it was the hard way. You knew from the beginning. Or have you ever observed someone uh, doing something or some people doing something in a way and you knew that it was not going to work what they were trying you see these things on these America's Funniest Home Videos sometimes on television you know you see these guys you know on a bicycle that doesn't fit or something and they're going to jump a ramp and you, go, you know that's not going to work and that's why they have the video on there it doesn't <clears throat> I'm reminded of a I asked the boys permission on this when when the kids were real small, uh, a, ma- a friend of the family had just passed away not long ago, uh, Dean Wheeler's father, Ray Wheeler. He used to work at J.B. Rose's store uh, every afternoon. <clears throat> and one of Ray's way- ways of loving the kids in the neighborhood and-, and being nice to them was to tease them about something. It was just his way of saying, you know, I, I like you. And he did it a lot. Whenever little boys walked in the store, little boys that he knew, he would say, hey, girl. And little girls that might have been, he went to church with us, that might have been from the church, when they walked in the store, he'd say, hey, boy. It's just his way of saying I care, you know, about it. Just uh, people do things like that. Well, Andy and Josh were small. And after a while, this started to take its toll on Andy. <laughs> He's just a little thing. <clears throat> And one day, he, Josh doesn't even remember this, but one day he coached Joshua, and they, they both put on denim jackets, turned the collar up, and, and Andy told Josh, and they put on sunglasses. And uh, we were, I was going to the store, and they were with me, and Andy said, well, I, w- I want to go over there, and I'm going to try this, Dad. And, 
And he told me before we went in, he, he said, uh, Dad, you stay around the corner. If you're anywhere near us, we'll never get away with this. But he was saying, Josh, he'll never recognize. They were little. He said, he'll, Mr. Ray will never recognize us today. He'll never know it's us with these costumes on. <laughs> and so... Anyway, I, I, they, I was around the corner where Ray couldn't see me through the store window, and they walked in, and before the door shut, I could hear his voice in there and said, Hey, girls. <laughs> and Andy came out of there and said, I just knew he wasn't going to know it was us today, and he wasn't going to call us girls. And that was cute. <clears throat> but imagine God, not, not, not as cute, watching people... Uh, that he created to love him and depend upon him utterly and fully to depend upon him. Everything he's ever done has been to teach us our dependence and our need for him and for his righteousness and his holiness. And just imagine, I can't even imagine, but what it's like for God to watch human beings to strive and strive and strive and to to, to try to please him in our own efforts and by our, our own abilities, even, even for those of us who were born again, to forget really why we're okay with him, why we're more than okay with him, to sometimes forget and, and get in one of those little hamster wheels and just boogity, 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 just to no avail. Um. And, and so I want to talk about that tonight. And when we, when we look at this verse 1 again, I'll only talk about five or six of these verses, uh, three, four, five, six at the most. But verse 1 says, I'm, I'm going back to the New American Standard because if, that's something, if some of the particular word usage was, is in my notes with that, I want to be there. But he says, brethren, Paul writes, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I don't want to take anything for granted tonight. I just want to unpack all this as best we can. Whose salvation is Paul talking about? Well, the Israelites, of course. Uh, most everybody, if not everybody in here, knows that. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Gentile Christians and has just spent quite a few lines talking about the by and large rejection of Christ by the vast majority of the Israelite people, not all of them, but the vast majority of them, and to this day, and their rejection of Christ. <clears throat> Look, or listen at least, if you will, to the end of chapter 9, the last three or four verses, verse 30. Paul writes, What, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And then look back at the end of chapter 10 again, the last, let's see, verse 20 and 21, the last two verses. And Isaiah is very bold and, said, and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
Just kind of want to get that in mind right now, the things he said. Now, so a faithless, stumbling, unbelieving, disobedient, and obstinate people, and I'm using the terms that Isaiah and Paul used, are the objects of Paul's deep, heart-wrenching desires and prayers. And think about that for a minute. How often do faithless, stumbling, unbelieving, disobedient, obstinate people consume your thoughts and my thoughts? It's kind of a strange thought, isn't it? But they're the objects of Paul's deep... I can't see Paul. I can read this, though. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Listen to... um, Well, let me ask this first. Why, again, I've already said this, but why this anguishing concern and spiritual effort for the sake of, just to summarize, unbelieving and obstinate people? And look with me in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. A lot of obvious things here to many of us, but I want to talk about them. It's important to get to where we're going with this. Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. There, there again, we see the depth of his heart here. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So part of the answer is pretty obvious. And again, most of us, if not all of us, know this very well. Paul was an Israelite. And as he points out, they are his kinsmen according to the flesh. And in cases like this, human beings usually do care, even with with people that are like us. Um, Even if other people don't care about certain people in, uh, in certain categories. We, we often say birds of a feather flock together. We, we say things like that. Um, when people are found, when people are wrong about things or have failed in life in some um, dishonorable way, when people are lacking, um, it seems that those who, though, when we know someone like that, we're very close to them, it seems easier for us to love them and have compassion for them if they're our, and I'm just throwing this out there, I, I don't, I'm not assuming anything, but our own kind. Uh, family members. Naturally support family members. You know, you, you hear parents say, no matter what, I'll always love my child. No matter what they do. And we mean that. We, we, we all as parents say that. Not meaning we approve of everything. But we, we say things like that. And I, I, I think we mean it. I hope we mean it. Team members support team members. I'm just naming some illustrations. Um, if you're a, if you're a um, New England Patriot, Tom Brady had nothing to do with those footballs. And I like the Patriots, so I don't think he did either. <laughs> but anyway... But anyway um, you know, we, we do that. And, and patriots, not New England patriots, but national patriots support those of the same nationality in tough times, don't they? We, we see that happen with people. Um, 
But on occasion, once in a while, people of, of very different backgrounds and mindsets can become extremely concerned for each other and uncommonly kind and understanding due to similar circumstances and needs or desires or something that might draw them together. We hear of things like this in the midst of wars, in the midst of uh, natural disasters. Think back about, uh, it's hard to believe how long it's been, but you think back to Hurricane Floyd and things, you know, you, you, you hear of people helping people uh, maybe folks they never inter- folks that would never interact with other people for whatever reasons. Um, 9-11. In 9-11, it seems like no matter what people in New York believed or where, where they stood on things, New Yorkers were New Yorkers when that happened. I think one of the most profound things I've ever heard of in history was the Christmas truces of World War II. British troops coming out of the trenches, German troops coming out of the trenches. Is Brad here? I was going to say, correct me if I mess up any of this, but I read up on it. Uh, but uh, they they came out of the trenches on Christmas Eve and, and Christmas of 1914, and they swapped prisoners. They helped each other bury their dead. They exchanged food and gifts. They sang Christmas carols together, and in a few cases... They played football together. I would assume that means soccer. That, that they played in between the trenches right in the middle of World War I in 1914. Fascinating. I've read things. And that happened for miles and miles and miles along the front. The fighting went on in some spots, but in a lot of places they had these Christmas truces of 1914. And then... They went back after Christmas, and within days, they were killing each other again. It's just fascinating. Uh, you read things like that in history. But back to Paul and the Israelites. Yes, Paul was an Israelite, and so it would seem natural for him to have a prayerful passion for the lost souls of his kinsmen, of Israelite kinsmen. But there's something else that all of us Christians here should tend to, and I want to move into some application. Again, I, I'm I'm dependent on Justin to really, um, really rake through this really good for us. I'm not trying to do that, but I, I want to get to some application about this verse one. Let's look at it just again, just to remember before I start in this, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, disobedient and obstinate people. As Paul writes this letter to the Romans, there's no doubt that he was constantly aware that up until Christ appeared to him, up until, Paul, uh, up until God called out to him, up until God saved his soul, that Paul was Saul. The faithless, I'm using these words again, the faithless, unbelieving, disobedient, obstinate, arrogant, relentless persecutor of believers and followers of Jesus Christ. Without question, Paul, though he received God's forgiveness when he thought about his brethren, I have no doubt that he, he, he remembered this. But by the grace of God, who would I be and where would I be? So what should that mean to those of us here who were born-again recipients of God's grace and mercy. Some very practical things for us. First of all, not, not one of us Christians 
came to Christ sinless, did we? Not a one of us came to Christ innocent. Not a one of us came to Christ spiritually clean. Every one of us believers here tonight, we, we came to Him sinful and guilty, and we found forgiveness and compassion at the cross. We found nothing less than that. Second, uh, someone, in addition to God, because God chooses to work that way, someone was used as an instrument and a mouthpiece to speak the truth of the gospel to us in spite of our sin, our lostness, our, our, all those words that we used before. Our undeserving souls. A, a parent, a, a friend, a pastor, a teacher, a coach, an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent. Just fill in the blanks. Somebody cared enough about us to share the truth of Christ, to share the gospel with us. And if the truth be known, someone and maybe several someones were praying for God to break through our hearts and for us to come to salvation through Jesus. Christians, you and I are in Christ and we are heaven bound today because somebody cared about our souls. Somebody agonized over us. And I can't erase any of these negative words that Isaiah and Paul used from my own life and my own soul and what I truly deserve and deserved at the time that I was saved. So the third thing that I want out of application this evening is, if I've said this morning a few times, forgive me, I, I do that. I don't, it doesn't matter. But if you're, if you're a Christian here tonight, I just want to ask you to take a moment to think about, I really want you to go through this exercise, I, I want to, to think about a lost person, or more than one if you want to, that you know who is difficult, unbelieving, maybe even obstinate, in your opinion, to deal with. And just take a moment and think about somebody like that, that you know, that you know enough to that you're close enough to to know well. And I, I want to ask you to think about something else. This could be harder. And, and this isn't a tricky thing. I'm, I'm not implying anything by this. I, I have something in mind, and I'll tell you what it is in a minute. I don't mind telling you that. <clears throat> but think about a people group in this world. Paul's talking about a people group. Am I right about that? He's, I would certainly have to say that. They're kinsmen, but it was a whole people group. Uh, think about a people group in this world that you have a hard time thinking about that are anti-Christ. Um, that you have a hard time thinking about with any amount of compassion or love political group, nationality. It's hard to say that about a whole nationality, isn't it? Special interest group. There's all kinds of things going on right now that, that, that could come to mind. Um, specifically, what comes to my mind, but I think very difficult people to want to pray for and hope anything good for. I, I think about guys on the news with black hoods on right now. ISIS, um, militant Islam. Uh, I got a brother 
in the middle of all that and his family. It's constantly trying to live out and pray verse 1 here for those people. And there's nothing natural about that. There's nothing that our flesh would would voluntarily move towards that kind of compassion on our own. There's, if you have a compassion for a people like that, it's got to be, as far as I know, it's got to be of the Spirit. There would be no other way to have desires for good and for salvation and for compassion on people who are so cruel. And there's other cruelties going on right now. That I hope there's some other things. Not that I'm glad that there's things on our mind, but I hope there's other people groups and things on our mind that we would think about. And I want to ask you to do a little exercise here because I'd like to uh, to work on this before we even walk out. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't do this normally when I preach, but if we could bow our heads to pray for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to do anything, and I'm not going to say any more or do anything out loud except just to kind of prompt this a little bit. I want to ask that we bow our heads for a minute and quietly pray for the salvation of whatever person and people that came to our minds. And and I specifically tried to lead us towards difficult people. People that we don't have a hard time at all saying they're undeserving. But I want to ask you to keep a couple of things in mind. One, that Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And two, that Mark 10.27 says, With God, all things are possible. All things. And finally, that if this person and these people are so difficult to think about with any amount of compassion, and if we know that, and we don't pray for them in light of the truth of the passage in Romans 10, verse 1, fresh in our minds and before us, if we don't believe in praying for those people or those kinds of people, then who will? And so I just want to stop for a minute and just let's all quietly pray for whoever came to mind. Okay, I want to move on. I hope we don't forget that and that the heart that Paul moves us into this in this part of Romans with. Moving on to, and I'll just stop when I run out of time, okay, but moving on to, to verses 2 through 5. Yeah, I'm going to try to talk about verses 2 through 5 real quickly here. For I testify about them, these Israelites that he's pointing to, a difficult, obstinate people. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. 
<clears throat> so how, how question here, how did the Israelites miss seeing the truth of the gospel of Christ? How in the world did they miss seeing the truth of the gospel of Christ? And how do religious people today, even in the New Testament church sometimes, still miss the truth of the gospel of Christ in the midst of all of their religious thought and activity? How can we possibly miss it? Well, Paul begins by saying in verse 2 that their zeal for God is not in accordance with knowledge. He's not saying that they're not smart or studious. It's not at all what he's saying. In fact, the word zeal would imply that there's diligence and great effort there. So it's not that. But rather that they've missed something of absolute significance in the midst of their very thorough efforts. Their efforts are impeccable, thorough, but they've still missed something. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians these words, and and you don't have to turn there, I'll read it to you. you, you know this. Uh, he wrote these words to the Corinthians and he said, I am afraid, I think 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. God knows that we as humans have made and continue to make this life much, much, much harder than it needs to be. <clears throat> A little illustration here. Back when last year of college, my parents and myself and some of our friends uh, rented an old house, an old three-story house on Atlantic Beach on the beachfront. It was right after graduation for about $300 for the week. Those were the days, 1980-something. And um, I'm not a surfer. I tried once in high school. You know, I got up on the board and all, but that, that's it. Me and a buddy went to rent a surfboard in the 10th grade, and that was my first attempt at that. And we were out on this beach one day in 1989, and, and the waves looked like they might work, and I saw some other guys surfing, so I ran down to Burt's Surf Shop, rented a surfboard, jumped on the surfboard. My friends and my parents were on the beach. I paddled. I got out there and dove in, paddled, 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 paddled. The waves were breaking. I was cutting through them, going over them. I was out about three or 400 yards, and a wave hit me and knocked me off the surfboard, and I was just obliterated me, and I got up, and I was up to my knees in water. I was on, I was on a, a sand, um, a sandbar, thank you, Cindy. I was on a sandbar, and I was there just paddling, paddling, just working myself to death for minutes and got knocked off. I was standing up to my knees, and I looked back, and everybody was just laughing their heads off. Um, looking, we, we, we make life harder than it has to be, probably more often than we know. Uh, verse 3, just looking at some of this in a little, little bit of detail. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Folks, God's righteousness is perfect. It is flawless. It is unspeakably and unfathomably pure. They didn't seem to consider that enough. God's righteousness is out of reach for mere sinful man. And seeking to establish their own righteousness and somehow thinking that they were getting that all right and then adding some more to it, as we know from history of the Jews, or just from the Gospels, from what Jesus tells us that they tried to do, tried to do. 
the Israelites of Paul's day, among other Jews and Gentiles still in this world today, were not and are not able to find it in their hearts to admit their wretchedness and unworthiness before a perfect and holy God and Creator. If you will, turn with me to Psalm 24. won't spend a lot of time there but just to point out some Psalm 24 and I'll just read it to you if you don't turn there verses 1 through 5 the earth is the Lord's and all it contains the world and those who dwell in it for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place verse 4 He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood. And when he says that, he means who has not ever lifted their soul up to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Remember, uh, who's there? I mean, who, who has actually accomplished that? Remember again, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so folks, this excludes all effort and all people unless someone steps up and does something big on our behalf. But if that someone does step up and do something big on our behalf, Anyone who would come to God after that would have to come humbly and confess their utter dependence and acceptance of the one who would step up on their behalf. And that one is Jesus. We know that. Now considering verses 2, 3, and 5, verse 4 makes it very clear, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 4 makes it very clear that while God's moral law is pure and absolutely good, and while we should always attempt to obey it, that our 100% failure rate as humans, meaning 100% of us fail to keep it absolutely all the time, our 100% failure rate as humans always pointed to our need for the Messiah to come and intervene on our behalf. What Paul and Moses mean by verse 5, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. What Paul and Moses mean by that is that if a person is going to depend on obeying the law to be right with God, he or she had better get it all right all the time from the very beginning of their life to the very end of their life period, without any flaw. And that is an utter impossibility except for Christ. It wasn't impossible for Him. He's fulfilled that. It always pointed to Christ. Verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we can praise God tonight that Christ is the end, the fulfillment of the law for every one of us who believes. Matthew Henry Uh, Going back to him, I use Matthew Henry to death. But he put so many things well. And listen to what he said concerning Romans 10.4. He said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The design of the law was to lead people to Christ. 
the moral law was but for the searching of the wound. In other words, to reveal to us our imperfection, our death. The ceremonial law for the shadowing forth of the remedy. But Christ is the end of both. Christ is the end of the ceremonial law. He is the period of it because He is the perfection of it. When the substance comes, the shadow is gone. Christ is the substance. Remember and think back to Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah when Isaac said to Abraham, But Father, the wood and the fire, but where, where is the lamb? And, and Abraham said, Son, God himself will provide the lamb. And didn't he provide the lamb? The ram caught in the thicket was, was the shadow. Jesus is the substance of God providing the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. And when he sent his only son to die on the cross for the sins of all who would believe, he, he's fulfilled that. Christ is truly the fulfillment and the end of the law, period. So where does that leave each of us? Well, I want to address two types of people in this world, in this room, and any, anywhere that we go. Non-Christians, non-believers, or religious people who are not humbly dependent upon Christ for their righteousness and eternal destiny. I put all that in the same category. Um, need to know that they are not okay eternally on their own. Um, we can think about this personally if we need to. We can think about as a reminder of how, how we are supposed to witness and see people in this world that we're trying to reach and how to think about them and all of this as we try to reach them. There is sin. There is righteousness. There is a definite judgment to come. God would not have sent His Son. This, this chapter makes this very clear. God would not have sent His Son. Christ would not have come to suffer and die a humiliating and agonizing death on a cross if a person could satisfy God's righteousness by their own efforts. That's insulting to God. That's insulting to Christ. We need Christ to intervene for us. We need Him to fulfill the perfect law for us, to be the perfect sacrifice and atonement and propitiation that God requires for the forgiveness of our sins and for our justification before His throne. If a person doesn't have Christ or does not know Christ yet and they want to, <clears throat> and, they, and they want to know Him as their Savior, their Lord, their brother, their friend, all those biblically apply. There's, there's great news that we have to tell them in this simple message, in the simplicity of this message. Verse, verse 6 and 7, halfway through verse 6 says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, and that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, we, we can tell people. And folks, there are people that need to hear this. This is simple to us, maybe. But it's not simple to everybody. People, they don't have to go on an expensive or scary crusade to find Christ. I, I'm, I'm on Facebook with a guy named Ali from Mahali's Hook Lesotho that put his journey back to Mecca with his son on Facebook last year. I saw a lot of pictures of this. There are a lot of people in this world uh, that, are, that are doing things like that to try to reach God. 
to try to appease him, to try to please him, to try to appease and please false gods in that case. But when we, when, when we talk to people or that need Christ, there's no mountain climbing trips. Buddhists on their little pilgrimages do things like that. Lots of people in this world do. Lots of Americans do. It's strange things, but no, no expensive trips or journey to the center of the earth or scuba diving with sharks or whatever somebody might come up with to reach God. In fact, people couldn't get to Him that way no matter how hard they tried. Verses 8 and 10 says, What does it say? The Word is near you. That's a message we need to make clear to people and that we need to remind ourselves of. The Word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the Word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. If someone has a desire in them to know Christ, you need to know, they need to know that He is right there, right now. They don't have to go anywhere. Anywhere. How good a news is that? How simple of a message is that for us to share with people? People can call out to Him in their heart, right where they sit, right where they stand, right where they are, And this passage, among others in the Scriptures, promise us and assure us that He will do just that. People came to Christ in all kinds of settings in the Bible. I won't go back. There's a lot of those we could go and look at. In 386 A.D., Augustine called out to Christ laying in the grass under a fig tree. Is that right? Something like that? I think that's what happened. That's what he said. In the early 1980s, my best childhood friend prayed to Christ while reading the Bible in his bedroom. He was, re- he was reading Romans. Another friend of mine, a former pastor of my parents, recalls being in seminary and crying out to Jesus in his car at a stop sign in the 1990s while driving, and he was saved. We don't put limitations on where people are geographically or what buildings they're in or what people they're near even, but that Christ, He is near. He's he's right he's right there. Um, many, obviously, many precious souls have called out the Lord from church pews or church chairs, right where they sit, right where you're sitting, and received His grace and mercy right then and there. And so, anyone in need of Christ, people that we know in need of Christ, they don't have to wait another moment to call out to Him in their heart if they've come to a point and their eyes have been opened and they see and they hear and they understand. Now, this part about confessing with your mouth Jesus is Lord, I I do not believe to be a mere one-time step or check that a person checks off. I did that, I did this, I did that. I don't think that's what that means. Confessing with your mouth, as I understand Scripture and salvation, is referring to a transformation of a person's identity that results in a continuing confession for the rest of his or her life on into eternity. In other words, once a person has believed in Jesus in their heart and called out to Him for His forgiveness, and I highly encourage people to call out to Christ, 
A born-again Christian then becomes, among other wonderful things, a confessor of the Lord Jesus Christ. The true Christian will never be ashamed to say Jesus is my Lord and Savior and belong to Him. Moreover, a true Christian will grow in their desire to make people known, to make known to people that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes into the Father but through Him. John 14.6 So, I'd encourage all of us, any of us, not to hesitate to call out to Jesus, not to hesitate to encourage people that we've shared the gospel with to call out to Jesus right where they are. He's right there. I remember somebody saying years ago, I take it for granted now, but I like to say it once in a while just to hear it. I remember a missionary saying years ago when I was at Camp Caraway, he said, you know, we're not taking Jesus to the people. He's, he's there. We're pointing them to Christ. He, he's, our, he's omnipresent. He's already there. We're taking the good news and the gospel and things like that. I mean, we always understand, but a lot, lot, lot of those years, people said, we've got to take Jesus to those people. Well, we've got to point them to Jesus. He's, our, he's ahead of us. He's, our, he's taking us there to tell them. So maybe we shouldn't get hung up on, on the way it's stated, just that we do it. Oh, therefore, let, let me just say this, and I'll close soon. Uh, I'll try. The only other type of person that we need to talk about, which is very important in this, would be Christians. Christians in this room. Interestingly enough, um, Christians, fellow Christians, when Paul wrote this letter, and all that is in this letter, including all of this talk about salvation, he was writing to the church in Rome. You know, we, we've got all this talk of salvation, and he's writing to the church. I don't know how else to go about it except just to go back to Romans chapter 1, and, and you've got this uh, introduction, and one of the things he says is, and he, he does this in a lot of his letters, to, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to born-again Christians. Now, we know that in, in the visible church, Jesus told us there would always be wolves among the sheep, there will always be tares among the wheat. We know that. But, I mean, Paul's clearly addressed this letter to the believers, to born-again people in Rome, with all this talk of salvation. So, last question I want to ask is just, why that? What, what, how much does that mean to us? What should it mean? And this is where I'm talking in here, and everybody can look at me like, what's wrong with you? And I can't see you anyway through my reading glasses. But God knows what goes on in my heart. He knows where I struggle. He knows where you struggle. And let me just say a few things before I close. Paul knew, and God ordained, that his church and his people should stay sharp and clear and sober in our joy and understanding of the gift of salvation and grace and mercy and love that we have in Christ. And obviously, we don't always stay sharp in that. I confess. I confessed a lot this morning in Sunday school. I'll go ahead and confess. I don't always stay sharp in that. Oh yeah, I always know. I always have that knowledge. But then I find my soul struggling with some things, not trusting God as much as I should in, in certain areas of my life. Now, 
The verse that I quoted earlier in this sermon, 2 Corinthians 11.3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion of Christ was written to Christians in Corinth. So I have that. I've got all this instruction about salvation and building up of our faith through this, through this teaching in Romans. I've got that verse written by Paul to the Christians who he addressed as believers at Corinth. In addition, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, and, and Paul's usually pretty good about long um, greetings in letters, but very quickly, chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians, he real quickly, he, he, he says, I'm amazed that you were so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a dis- different gospel, which is really not another gospel. And Judaizers had come in and had confused the saints at Galatia and said, you know, you you, you got to do this if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be saved. And then the book of Hebrews, Merle's done such a wonderful job of teaching us in Sunday school and shared with us in, I called it big church when I prayed in Sunday school this morning, shared with us in big church. The kids at Elm Grove used to do that this morning. book of Hebrews teaches us as Christians that Jesus Christ is the new covenant, that He is superior to the law, that He is the fulfillment of the law on, on our behalf, and that we, never, we need to never forget that. So all through the New Testament, we have this challenge to Christians, to believers, to keep this in mind and remember this and not stray from it. And so I know by the very nature of these writings that we do that. We struggle. We forget that. We put that aside. We get back in that little wheel again and we start just running and running and running and boogie, boogie, boogie and wearing ourselves out. Yes, the law is good. We should observe its wisdom and its benefits, but folks, we have no hope of righteousness on our own. We need Christ every day. Even if we've had Him for 40 years or 60 years or 80 years, we need Him every day. Now, one more confession. I'm somewhat of a perfectionist. And y'all ought to know me well enough to laugh when I say that. And I... It's, I'm a disorganized, clutter-brained perfectionist. I know I get nowhere close to it, and I shouldn't even confess that I'm kind of a perfectionist, but I, I, I am. I, I struggle with some of that. But um, As disorganized and scatterbrained as I am, I put a lot of pressure on myself to get things just right. And when I don't think I can get things just right, sometimes I just put them aside for a while. And uh, it's just a struggle of mine, personally. Um, and of course I, I fall way short of perfection and then I beat myself later up later on for it on the inside anybody like that? I don't nod I'm assuming I'm not alone that, uh, that someone else struggles like that or maybe with something like it And so, again, even as born-again believers who are heaven-bound, each of us in our own way, we sometimes, again, we get in that little hamster wheel and we just run and run and run. And spiritually speaking um, is what I'm talking about. And, And sometimes we do that and never feel any closer to Jesus than the day before. And there's a whole... One of the things I want to note, and I'm not saying that it's here, I don't believe it's here, but folks, there's a whole lot of churches like that, don't you know? 
They're just out there just as busy as they can possibly be. They're getting no closer to Christ than the day before, the week before, the year before. Glorifying Him no more than they ever have. Just busy, busy, busy. Trying to please God through their busyness and their activity. There's nothing wrong with activity. And when God makes us busy, we ought to be busy. But when we make ourselves busy to try to think that that's somehow going to help us get His job done and please Him, then we've, we've, missed, we've missed the point. I want to close with good news. There is peace and rest in Jesus. I don't know what's going on in the hearts of anybody in here really unless you've shared it. But I know this, Christians tend to forget that because the New Testament tends to go back there time and time again and remind us that there's peace and rest in Jesus and we can't add to it. We don't have to run ourselves and our souls ragged in that proverbial hamster wheel to be right with Christ. I've got a friend who, who shares this illustration of where they grew up, and I'll just talk about it where, where we were. You know those old kerosene lanterns, the little red ones, you can buy them in sporting goods at, at uh, Walmart. You can buy them at the country store. You can buy them at the Cracker Barrel. Um, I, I actually camp with those things. <laughs> that put out a lot of light. If it's absolutely pitch dark outside, you can see something with them. But if there's any more light around, they don't put out a whole lot. Those little kerosene lanterns, we had several of them in, in, in Lesotho. And they put out just enough light to step right in front of me. I've got this friend that grew up on the mission field, and he talks about that. He talks about those little kerosene lanterns. And back when he was on the mission field all those years ago as a kid, um, you know, they didn't have the... the, the the Coleman gas lanterns. I mean, that's really all they had. And he talks about the fact that, you know, snakes were around and you knew that especially at night you had to look where you were going, take one step at a time. And and he and he, he talked about holding his dad's hand and having that kerosene lantern and they had just enough light for one step at a time. But if he was holding his dad's hand and he was taking that one step at a time that that his dad let him see with the light that he was okay. And, and sometimes we've got to look at our lives and back up when we're struggling on the inside, when we're not feeling like we should, we're not feeling godly when we've failed, maybe we're not feeling loved, maybe we're not feeling worthy, and we, we are in Christ. We're not on our own, but in Christ we've been made heirs to the kingdom of God. That's a big deal. It just helps to remember something simple about if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we hold His hand, take a step at a time, as much as He lets us see, everything's all right. Let's pray.